everyone. This is Britta Wedeling, and you are listening to the Bits and Pretzels podcast, the podcast for founders and entrepreneurs, investors, and decision makers. Bits and Pretzels is Europe's leading founder festival right here in Munich, Bavaria. Home to the pretzel, to Oktoberfest, and to Bits, of course. Creating the next generation of companies. Welcome to the show. It was at that point, I was actually living in London at the time. I was doing a semester abroad and during my mm -hmm. Berkeley MBA at London Business School. And I was uh, in my flat in Ladbroke Grove uh, near Portobello Market. And, um, and, uh, and then I suddenly thought, gosh, what if you could just identify the song just from the sound coming into your phone? This is the way success stories in Silicon Valley usually happen. You are a founder with an idea. You go and talk to the venture capitalists on Center Road. That's the road where all the money sits in the tech world. And you get your check, eventually. And this is what Chris Barton, the co-founder of Shazam, did. The app just about everyone uses when it comes to identifying songs, movies, or TV shows. He recently sold his company to Apple for about $400 million, as far as the story goes. But what if there were a different way to build your business as an entrepreneur? Today, I'm meeting up with Chris right here in our podcast studio in Munich. We talked about the ups and downs that he had to battle on the path to the top of the heap in Silicon Valley and specifically about why he would never take venture capital to start a company again. But before all of that, I of course wanted to know how he got started with Shazam. Okay, so um, I think uh, essentially while I was doing my master's degree, my MBA at Berkeley, um, I, I just came to a point where I sort of crossed a threshold and, and decided I really want to start a company. That's just what I want to do. It wasn't my plan going into the MBA program, but while I was there, I just came to this moment where I realized that, that that's kind of the thing that that was my passion. Um, and so um, I embarked on the journey at that point. Um, while a student. Um, and the two things I did is I started to select co-founders, um, but and I also went into kind of a brainstorming mode of just trying to think about, well, what would this business be? Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and I was just constantly just trying to think of new ideas and kind of kind of questioning the ideas from, from different angles and so on. Um, and I stumbled across the Shazam idea. Um, and, Do you uh, remember the moment or like the situation where you came up with this idea? Well, it was actually, so in a way, there's sort of two moments because there's, there was the mo in a way, I, I, I like to think of as Shazam, the, the idea as the obvious idea and then the non-obvious idea. So the obvious idea is, um, oh, you know, I'd love to know what that song is. And, that, and it's actually very obvious. Like, I mean, even at the time, I think it was a common problem for people. So I would definitely not say I was the first person to come up with that idea. In fact, there were actually several companies that were, um, had, were, had built and launched products that were trying to solve that solution. Um, and, uh, and so they were at very early stages, those companies. Um, and so I kind of was thinking, well, I also would like to do this because no, no one had broke it big yet, this whole idea of identifying songs. Um, and what all these companies were doing was they were essentially monitoring radio play. Um, so just monitoring radio stations. And if you monitor radio stations, you know what's playing on the radio at every time for, on every station. And then you can have a service where people can check and find, they say, oh, I'm listening to this radio station and they can use their phone to find out what's playing. And so, the, um, so I initially was thinking about that kind of concept 
um, some kind of radio based service, which is a relatively easy, relatively easy technical problem. I mean, it's not, nothing's easy, but it didn't involve having to invent a new technology. Um, and then the breakthrough idea uh, was when I was thinking about, well, if I built something like this, something that monitored radio play and told people what song was playing, as I said, other companies were doing the same thing. Um, what would, uh, I started to question and say, well, what, what would make me irrelevant so I was almost, almost, almost jump, jumping ahead and thinking, like, what would make this whole thing, you know, completely, you know, what, what would so, allow someone to leapfrog me, essentially? Um, and then it was at that point I was actually living in London at the time. I was doing a semester abroad and during my mm-hmm. Berkeley MBA at London Business School. And I was uh, in my flat in Ladbroke Grove uh, near Portobello Market. And, um, and, uh, and then I suddenly thought, gosh, what if you could just identify the song just from the sound coming into your phone, then you wouldn't even need to know what's playing on the radio. And then, and then I thought, and not only that, you wouldn't, even, you wouldn't need to type in the radio station on your phone, and it wouldn't be limited to radio play. It would also work you know, for bars and cafes and theaters and TV and all these other places. Right. That so were, people can figure out what was their song when they meet in a bar, for example. So this is our song. Yeah. Like kind of stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that was the real breakthrough is just thinking, wow, what if you could do it with just the sound coming into the phone? Um, and obviously that was pattern recognition, kind of like voice recognition at the time. And I knew it would be a challenging thing, but it just felt to me that that should be possible. Um, and so I decided, let's embark on this, you know, and I, I kind of agreed with the co-founders that we're all going to just go and try to find someone that can invent this technology. And that, that's really the, that was sort of the inception of Shazam was to, we then started Googling and searching for people. What kind of people would even have this type of expertise, you know? And then we start, very quickly learned it's people who have PhDs in digital signal processing or audio signal processing. Um, so essentially PhDs in electrical engineering. Um, and, um, and then there, there was a subset of those people that had these interests in audio signal processing and even a subset of those people that specifically were interested in music audio signal processing. So like other examples of music audio signal processing is like when you get an electronic keyboard and you play, you push the keys and then it sounds like a piano. Well, that's using electronic signal processing to, to kind of create those sounds. Right. But these were like kind of nerd people, I guess. Right? Oh, they're, like, they're all they're PhDs in electrical engineering. And we approached the ones at the best institutions in the world you know, including Berkeley and MIT and Stanford, um, and just a handful. Right? I mean, there would be in any given year uh, at Stanford or MIT, there might be just two or three or four people that would graduate with a PhD in audio signal processing focused on music. Um, so there's not a long list of these people, um, but many of them had published papers and various things related to music. Um, and so we knew their names by Googling. Um, and, um, and actually, I just started to create a document that was a, a list of, I think it was about 30 names. Um, and there was this one name we kept hearing is this is the one guy that's the, uh, kind of, kind of the, uh, the grandfather of this industry. And he was, uh, and he was a professor at Stanford. Um, and he had, he had been like when Steve Jobs had broke, left Apple to create next computer, 
This guy had worked for Steve Jobs as the head of audio technology. He had become, he had been a professor. He was at the time a professor at Stanford. Um, he had invented the algorithms that are in Yamaha synthesizers, like the foundational algorithms that are used in synthesizers, basically. So he had all those patents. So he was considered kind of the eminent person in this space. So I kept trying to see if I can get in touch with him. Initially, he ignored me. Um, but then finally, I got an introduction from, I think, another professor, and he, he took a meeting. How did you convince him to come and join? Well, he didn't join. He, he didn't join. Oh. So, um, I, well, he did. He did. He this guy became an advisor. Okay. So this is not the person that became the co-founder. Um, so this was. So I went and met this guy in, at his home in Palo Alto near Stanford. This professor and I showed him this list of the 30 names I'd collected. And I said, um, first I said, you know, we'd love you to be an advisor to the company. Um, but then I said, um, now the next thing is we need a co-founder, someone that's full time that's going to just work to invent this technology. Um, here's 30 names. And he said, I know all those people, right? Because even though they're, they're not all from Stanford, there were some from MIT Media Lab and, and right. Berkeley. It's a small group it's a of people. Small yeah. group. They go to, yes, and, they all, and they're doing PhDs that take six or seven years. So you cross paths a lot. Um, and I said, can you please rank the five smartest of these 30 people? Um, and then I'm going to target those people as my co-founder. Um, and then I said, when you, as you're ranking them, I'd like you to um, factor in um, people who are deeply theoretical. Now, clearly, all these people are PhDs in electrical engineering, so they're all extremely smart, but some tend to be even more theoretical than others. Um, and theoretical was bad or? It was good. Was yeah, good. deeply theoretical. So theoretical, I mean, if you think about it, because I knew we were going to try to invent something. And, to, you know, if you're inventing something, you're like, it's the it's true theory. I mean, it's like you're, you're, you're like a, a scientist, you know, a mad scientist, you know. And, uh, and so you're not just simply like studying things that exist and then implementing them. You're actually trying to think, how are we going to do this thing that no one's ever done? Um, so that's, that's why I needed someone like theoretical, like the kind of person, almost like an Einstein, you know. Um, and then secondly, I, I, I kind of, you know, at a gut level, I felt like, oh, they would have to be also very strong in statistics and mathematics. And so, and, and also very strong as a, in software development. So it kind of laid out those kind of goals. And I said, how, how would you rank these people? And again, we want to get to the five smartest of these 30. So we went through it, made this little list of the five smartest. And now I had a target list in the whole world of wow. the five smartest people that in audio signal processing, music and acoustics with the deeply theoretical and mathematical and statistical kind of focus areas. And now I'm going to go after and try to convince those five people to become a co-founder. Mm -hmm. um, and, that's, and that's what we did. And we got the number one ranked guy, Avery Wang, um, a PhD from Stanford, as well as four degrees from Stanford in mathematics and electrical engineering and statistics, um, and just happened to be an entrepreneur whose business had, had was failing and was looking for the next thing. Yeah, I think that's a question many entrepreneurs ask themselves is, how do you start something that's not invented yet? Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to... I don't know, build another e-commerce platform, yeah. build another mobility service, build the next scooter. So how do you target that actually? And how do you convince people well, actually, in Stanford? I mean, when you're in Stanford, you can probably, you know, go work at whatever, you know, how do you convince people to, to follow your mission? Yeah. Well, first of all, like what I've heard from many venture capitalists and, and I didn't realize this at the time because I was, as an entrepreneur, you just invent your own path. But what I've later since learned is that actually that approach of, of saying, here's an idea, but it, you, it's not even feasible. It's not, it's literally, there's no technology that's known. You'd have to invent something to do it. That approach to a startup is, is extremely rare. Or, or, and, and frankly, 
crazy as an as an approach because your odds it's a bit like saying i'm gonna you know i'm gonna cure cancer as my next business okay which here some we go. people say right what some people do that's true so um go to mars it's yeah, another thing I, yeah and there are people that do this there's definitely people that do it but by far the most common thing for entrepreneurship is actually the reverse where you an invention occurs like say, let's say in a company is inventing things or some kind of invention occurs. And then someone says, I'm going to take this and commercialize it. Um, and then, um, because that's a much, you know, there's already enough risk in entrepreneurship, um, such as market adoption and fundraising and, you know, all these types of things. Um, but let alone, can you, do you have the foundational technology? So yeah. how did you convince investors to invest in the company? Um, so first we had started off with angel financing, you know, seed financing, which was a approximately a million dollars added up to. Um, and, um, we actually decided that we wanted to create, uh, kind of credibility, um, for ourselves as a company, because when here we were four co-founders that had no background in mobile phones and no background in music, starting a mobile music recognition company, you know, and no what else would you do? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so, uh, so we're like, okay. So we knew that eventually the venture capitalists that put in the big money, millions of dollars are going to somehow judge whether we, you know, are trustworthy. Um, and, uh, and so, so, the, so when we targeted angel investors, partly to build up credibility, but also partly to match their passions with our business, we approached certain type of people. So the, the, the people that we secured as angel investors included the former chairman of EMI, which was one of the five major record labels, Sir Colin Southgate, the former chairman of BMG, another one of the five major record labels. Um, he was the chairman of BMG UK, um, the founder of Liquid Audio, which is a digital music company that went public back in the day. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and uh, the, the, former, the former chief technology officer of British Telecom, um, again, someone related to mobile phones and techno you know, technology. So we approached all these people. And like really legacy investors with good names, good brands. Yeah, they were not really active angel investors. They're mm -hmm. not like super angels or anything, but they are people that just had a, a background that there they would see our business and go oh this is something i really understand i mean i understand music industry so they would have a passion that matches with our business um, but also more importantly as i said for credibility we could then go to the vcs and say hey look who our investors are you know these are our investors they put their own hard-earned money into our company and that really did in fact i actually later learned from the vc that was one of the winning things that got him to to be to be convinced to invest in our business and i remember when we talked about you know, you coming to Munich and, you know, talking here at our event that you mentioned that you would never do VC money again. So, <laughs> so talk about, you know, the situation where you said, well, now we are like accepting money from VC and how this turned out to be difficult for the company or for you or like for your growth path. So, so talk about what happened then. Yeah. I mean, so we, we well we raised a so we raised a, a venture round you know about a year after we raised our angel round um, and so we went out and pitched to venture capital firms 2001 uh, leading up to our closing of our round in, in 2001 um, and um, and and the and the round was just about seven and a half million dollars led by IDG Ventures Europe um, and two other VCs that joined one one of which was Richard Branson's Version Group VC called Links Capital Partners and then a, a Belgian fund that focused very heavily on um, voice recognition 
investments typically called FLV. Anyway, so they all invested um, in the $7.5 million round. It was very, very tough to raise the money at the time because, again, during that period, I mean, think about it, we're raising, we're essentially out pitching to VCs during the year 2000. And as we- Oh and, my God, in the big crisis. Everything had, like the whole no. dot-com had to come to an end. Like everything had crashed. Um, and venture capitalists were, at that time, were mainly focused on just trying to get the, the companies they had already invested in, their portfolio companies, get out there. just keep them, yeah. keep them alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- fighting fires and just because they've already put all this money into them, they don't want them to just go bankrupt um, and less focused on investing in new companies. And then even for new companies, they're sort of scared of investing in new companies and then particularly consumer focused companies, which is what we were. Um, so it was really, really tough. Um, plus, we were, you know, we were raising money for a completely, you know, I mean, it, it was just not a known market. I mean, like doing things for mobile phones other than like there were there are no apps, right? There are no there's really almost nothing that you did on, on a mobile phone other than make a fo- phone call and send a text message. So there's no precedent. Um, so uh, it was so it was really, really tough to raise the money. But finally, we found this one VC who is very passionate about music. Um, and I keep in mind, this is like 2000. So think about what there was like the iPod hadn't even been invented. So it gives you an idea of how backwards technology was. But this guy was so passionate about music. He had he had created, bought a, his name is Ajay Chowdhury. And he had bought a, um, uh, a hard drive. Um, and he had he had kind of ripped all his CDs, taken all his digital music, put it onto this hard drive, and then hired someone to wire his hard drive in the back of his car in his trunk into his stereo system so he could basically have all his digital music in his car because there were just no products that you could do that with. And he had done that. So he was very passionate about music. And so when he saw this, he thought, oh, this is fantastic um, and took a lot of risk. He was the big money that took the first risk. Right. Um, but why would you choose to go a different path right now? Oh, with regards to venture money? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, um, I mean, so it's sort of a, a venture money. And when you need a lot of money to, to start a business, um, there's not many options other than venture money. I mean, that's the whole point is like if you want millions of dollars from someone for an unproven business, the only people that have that money are venture capitalists typically. Um so you kind of need to raise venture money, but there are there are negatives, there are, there are consequences to raising venture money, which is that what I, what I would describe as a misalignment between the entrepreneur and the venture capitalists, because venture capitalists are really looking for big, big grand slam wins. You know, they make if you look at the, their returns, they make all their money from the big multi-billion dollar companies, um, and um, and so they're really swinging for the fences, as they say in baseball terms. Um, Whereas for an entrepreneur, um, you know, you, you're, you're more focused on just building a successful business that can be valuable and successful. It doesn't have to be the world's biggest business. Um, and it's more important to you that it just has a successful outcome. So in other words, like one the example I think I was giving to you on the phone earlier was, um, you know, so let, let's say that uh, the venture capitalist is choosing between uh, there's a decision that needs to be made. And it's like that you have a business and it's doing certain things and you can either take this risk and you have a chance, you have a 10% chance of worth being worth $5 billion and a, and a 90% chance of being worth zero. Um, you know, the venture capitalist might be happy to take that risk, whereas the, the entrepreneur might prefer to go, actually, let's not do that. Let's just, let's just have a 80% chance of being worth $100 million. Um, because then for the entrepreneur, you know, it's still good and everything's great. Once you go for that billion dollar outcome, you raise a lot of money. And if it doesn't work out, the way economics work in venture capital is if you sell the company for less than you've raised, 
Everybody's losing. Everyone loses. There's right. zero, zero money to be distributed. The money all goes back to the original investors, known as liquidation preference. Yeah. So, um, so you absolutely get misalignments um, uh, between venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. Yeah. When I talk to friends who've been through this process, they also talk about how much pressure venture capitalists put on the company and, you know, how fast you have to grow, how many new people you have to hire, you know, that you, you can't just stand still. You just have to run and to run faster and to scale and to grow. And that can lead to some of the stories we know about Silicon Valley, right? This pressure on the founder that leads to situations at Uber, for example, where you see like, you know, you have to make this growth and, you know, we want to see these returns. And, you know, like, do you feel that this is kind of like there's like a connection between this pressure like, and, and the culture in, in these companies? Um, connection between the pressure and the culture, yeah. Like because you know, if you put so much pressure on the CEO of the company, yeah. you know, to like push for more growth, and you yeah. have to push your employees harder, yeah. you have to be more aggressive. Then you probably, you know, risk more. You know, you probably ignore rules more. Like what we yeah. saw with, with with Uber, for example, or other like WeWork is another yeah. example, yeah. right? Um, I, so, do you feel that's like part of the culture? That's I, something that's wrong about this culture in, in, in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think that, um, I think, I mean, there's definitely, the, the pressure from the VCs affects mostly the, the kind of founders, but I think it has less effect on all the employees. You know, they're really just, I mean, it just, it, there is a flow through effect probably, but I think that um, actually what happens, what we see with the, with the scenarios that you're describing is just these, um, very unique characters as as founders. There, there's, some, there's some founders like the WeWork guy that we're, we're all reading about in the press. That, I mean, and, and, I've, and that he's not the first. I mean, I've seen, I've come across a lot of these folks. It's not all founders. It's some, some set of founders that are kind of larger than life in their, in their head. Um, and they're really going to party it up the whole way. And, um, and they're like, and they have these grand ambitions, but, and there's this big picture and that, that big picture attracts investments. It's very, it's very convincing to the investors. Um, and then they, they go for scale really quickly. Um, but they're less, uh, yeah, they're less, they're less, uh, I don't know what the word for it is, but yeah, they, 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 um, play big. They're like the, the big rollers in, in Las Vegas, whatever you want to call it. Um, And yeah, and then, then you end up with these WeWork type outcomes, definitely. Um, but um, do you do you think it sets the wrong example for entrepreneurs? Um, I, you know, I think that. So I, I think that where the I mean, for example, I think the big problem is that where you know we look at the media, and, and and in the media you see the big companies that raise the big rounds that have the big valuations, and um, and and it makes entrepreneurs think, oh, I, I want to be just like that. But the reality is that's just a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of all c companies, including of successful companies. Like there's like lots of successful companies that are not the giant multi-billion dollar companies. Um, I mean, only the Facebooks and the Snapchats and so on. Are, and Networks effect is like the key word for it, right? Yeah, but, but there's, there's many successful companies that don't become, you know, blitz scale and become big multi-billion dollar companies. There's, and there's, right. and, and I, I think that's, that's where I think entrepreneurs can get confused. They feel like they have to do that and that's, that's wrong. You know? right. They're chasing the dream. They're chasing the media headlines, you know, $100 million funding round, billion dollar valuation, IPO. But the reality is like, 
you know, that's sort of like, you know, going and working in Hollywood and saying, oh, I want to be just like Tom Cruise, you know, but there's not, you know, there's for every Tom Cruise, there's another thousand actors that are making a living, um, you know, and doing well. Um, and in, in a lot of movies, they're just not Tom Cruise, right? You sold the company to Apple. How did this, you know, happen? And, and what were your experiences with this? amazing and also funny company in a way. Yeah. So, I mean, I should say that like the, uh, so my personal, uh, you have to keep in mind that I was on the board of Shazam. Um, although I kind of created, you know, the idea and the concept, it was a long time ago and the company starts to have a life of its own. So as a board member, I mean, essentially you have, we had, you know, over 18 years, which is the amount of time from starting the company to being bought by Apple. Um, there were multiple CEOs hired, And a bigger and bigger board that included sort of non-executive board members as well. Um, and um, so, so I didn't have a personal involvement in going out and knocking on Tim Cook's door and saying, would you like to buy Shazam? Um, I was, it's, as a board member, you get reports back saying, here's what's happening. The CEO is having this conversation. Um, Goldman Sachs, you know, is, is helping on these openings and these leads and so on um and um and and you get updates so but i mean uh, it's not every day that you know apple wants to buy you so yeah, it must not, have been like kind of exciting or oh, incredibly I don't know, exciting, especially yeah. given this this big history well I mean, apple has with music yeah right? yeah i mean from my perspective i mean there were multiple companies that that uh could have been a fit with you know, acquiring Shazam. Um, but Apple hands down was the best one. And from my perspective as an entrepreneur, um, you know, because I mean, the, the alignment, um, in terms of being, you know, being very focused on music, um, really only Spotify is the only other big player in that. Um, and then the, you know, the, the brand of Apple associated with just simple, beautiful user experiences that are incredibly delightful. I mean, and Apple wins that one hands down. Um, And that's perfect alignment with Shazam. And Shazam, absolutely, we found that our users just, you know, they love Shazam. They get, they, it had one of the highest ratings of all the, of all the top apps, you know, and, and left many things, many other famous apps sort of in, mm. the, in the dust. But on the other hand, Apple is a very paranoid, secretive. Yeah. And they like back from the day, like Steve Jobs started the company, it has yeah. always been this way. I mean, Tim Cook is like a slightly different CEO, you know, you, yeah. you can say, but it's like still this... You know, you get sucked up and then you, I don't know, it's like, it's not this open culture, yeah. I would say, that you see in at, at Google or yeah. other companies. Yeah. So, so how does it feel like to get like $400 million? Yeah, so for, I should first say that the actual acquisition price for Shazam was never disclosed publicly. So that's the price that the press speculated. Um, but um And is, I think it's the price that you see listed on Wikipedia and so on. Uh, it's exciting because if you look on the Wikipedia site for Apple acquisitions, I think it puts Shazam at the around the fifth or sixth largest acquisition of all time by Apple because they don't make that many big acquisitions. Um, but um, uh, but, but the, I guess the answer is, how does it feel to be acquired by Apple for a big number? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's it's exciting because I mean, you've worked for eight, 18 years on something and, and you really want to show that, It's worth more than the money you put into it, which for Shazam was $140 million. Um, of course, it'd be you know, great if it was billions of dollars, but no, it feels amazing. It feels amazing. And, uh, and uh, you know, you know I, I think it's satisfying to know that, you know, that there's many investors that were able to get good returns and that, um, and, and of course, employees and so on. And uh, so, yeah, that is, you've created something that's really of value, you know, as, as that sort of, it's that kind of final statement. So, yeah, it feels really good. 
So how did this change your work or your life or if it changed your Well, life it at didn't all? because I mean at the moment that Apple completed the acquisition of Shazam, the board wow. resigned. Okay. And so I haven't had I've, I've had zero involvement with Shazam since that transaction closed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've known that Shazam is in a great place, you know, because it's 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 they're keeping the Shazam brand and you have the Shazam team in their own separate office, you know, running their own separate app. I mean, it continues to live and breathe as mm-hmm. it, as its own little subsidiary. You might almost call it of Apple. Um, so it's ended up in a great place and highly complementary to the things that Apple does in, in music. And now you're doing what? You're unemployed or you just yeah, like a- hang and chill at your sister's house in Oakland? That was the time I spoke with you. Uh, I, I mean, I, so I... Um, Uh, so I live in San Francisco, but I'm always going to different places. I have a son and lives in Oregon, so I'm up there about a third of the time. He just turned 11. And then um, and I, I'm also going to various events and so on. I actually, um, I do these sort of, uh, I have a, a speaker's agency, so I actually am... I'm, I, companies hire me to come and speak. So, um, so that's one of my, that's one way I kind of earn a living right now. Um, and I've, and I've gone, I've gone to places to speak to, you know, SAP, uh, audience and Verizon audience and American express audience and so on. Um, and, and, and very interesting places like, uh, Mexico city, Busan, South Korea, Kazakhstan, uh, by Basel, Switzerland and Istanbul, Turkey, you know, so all these different things. So I'm, I'm spending some of my time doing that. Um, and then, um, and then I, uh, but, and then I'm bootstrapping as an entrepreneur. So I have this new startup company, um, that I haven't revealed what it does, Mm -hmm. um, publicly, but, um, what does it do? (laughs) I'm not going to reveal it on the podcast, but, uh, but what I can tell you is that it's, um, it's computer vision and machine learning, or it's actually really, when you say computer vision, there is a form of computer vision that doesn't require machine learning, but most computer vision today uses machine learning. Do you know what computer vision is? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So it's basically. Can you yeah? Can you explain it to okay. the audience? Okay. Yeah. So, um, so uh, really, the best way to think about it is um, in the same way that uh, artificial intelligence is when a a, a, com- a computer is basically doing what a human brain would normally do. Well, computer vision is when a computer is doing what a human might do with their eyes when they're making decisions using what they're seeing. Um, and so there's many examples of that. One, the most famous one today would be autonomous vehicles. So a car driving the streets and saying, oh, oh, there's a pedestrian crossing the street. There's a fire hydrant there. That light just turned red. There's a stop sign here. That's all computer vision. That's computers just looking at the scene, analyzing it, and then making decisions um, using machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it. Um, so that's computer vision. It's a really exciting area. And there's many other applications um, other than autonomous vehicles, which happens to be probably one of the biggest ones. We see about, you know, when this happened, actually, I'm like fairly critical about, you know, the success rate of these companies. Oh, I, yeah, I, I was like talking to John Krafschick a year and a half ago about uh, Waymo and the advancements in, in, in autonomous driving and it's going, it's actually going very slow. So it's, yeah. you know, we'll see, we'll see all about that. But before we close this yeah. podcast, what kind of music are you listening to? Oh gosh. I, you know, I don't really stay that up to date um, with music, um, but um, I have certain bands that, that I just love. Um, um, like some of them are really teeny. Like or, or, or there's one that's called DeLorean. Actually, they broke up, but I love them. And they're not. And there's two DeLoreans. It turns out, but I like the one that's more folksy kind of music rather than the uh, EDM one. And then um, 
There's one called Elbow. Um, they're still around. It's a British band. Um, they're kind of like the Radiohead Coldplay type music. Um, really, some really great albums and music. And then um, I love Sigur Ross, which is uh, Icelandic. Yeah. Um, and then great band. Yeah, they're really good. Yeah, very powerful. I, I, I describe some of the music I like. I, I like to describe it as emotional because I mean that's just my name for it. That's not the actual genre. But um, all those, all three of those bands would would categorize as emotional in the sense that like the music is so beautiful and, and, and that, um, it kind of just makes you just feel almost emo- the emotions, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, some people might even say it's sort of sad songs, but I, I find it very uplifting strangely. Um, and I like to, I like to go running while I listen to this kind of music because it was just, it would just take me out of my normal consciousness and into like a different state of mind. That's almost like meditation. Cool. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks yeah. for coming on the podcast, Chris. Yeah. Great thank to you for great me. to have you here. Yeah. Thank you. It's fun. <laughs> thank you. So that was it for today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show and will let your friends and colleagues know about it. You can find us on all regular podcast platforms or come and visit bitsandpretzels.com. We are also on social media, so go ahead and share, like, and comment. You can also recommend a guest for our show. Yes, you can even nominate yourself or tell us your thoughts at podcast at bitsandpretzels.com. We are always happy to hear from you and curious about your feedback. I am Britta Wedling. Thanks for listening. <laughs>